Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of the Week. Our special guest is David Frum of The Atlantic, whose most recent book is Trumpocalypse, and who has been a guest with us before and uh, has elicited requests from our viewers, listeners, asking for his return. So see, when you make a request, you might get it fulfilled. Now, this week saw quite a lot. Uh, We will get to some of it. The White House has become the chief coronavirus hotspot in the Washington area. Uh, The president has shut down talks on another economic relief package, Um, and uh, the DOJ has admitted that it inadvertently altered documents uh, that it submitted to a court in the Michael Flynn case, just to get us started. All right. Um, Also, we learned just before coming on air that the FBI foiled a plot to violently overthrow the government of, wait for it, Michigan and kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer and put her on trial for treason. Uh, Some militia members were arrested, six of them. All right, let us begin though with last night's vice presidential debate and the aftermath. Um, David Frum, uh, the president could not get off the stage. Uh, He he called, Harris, a monster and a communist. Um, but uh, how did you think the vice president did? Um, the vice president did fine if they hadn't invented the television camera. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I think it, this was a, a little bit like the reprise of that famous observation about the 1960 Kennedy Nixon debates. If you only listen to them, they seemed um, they seemed one way. But th- I think the most striking thing when you watch the debate on television, which has been invented is the vice president was obviously not well. There's something Mm -hmm. the matter. Um, And at a time when um, COVID is rampaging through the White House, there's something about our codes of conduct in the media world. We we don't speculate. We don't like to, especially people's private life or their health. But you just could not avoid watching that there was something that he was pale, uh, his eyes were pink, uh, his mouth was twisted, and there was a um, large canker in the right drooping right corner. Something was going on. And then the fly landed on his head and stayed there for two minutes, and he pretended that nothing was happening. And I think those things obliterate all that was said. And and that's not true in the commentary. It's only true for the 50 million people who watched it. Interesting. Um, So, Damon, did you think that it... Um, that it was mostly a visual thing. I mean, you know, t- they do say that uh, that you can judge who wins and loses a debate in a political debate with the sound off. What What do you think? Well, I, I mean, I think everything David said uh, is true, and it probably will be showing up in polling. I mean, my my impression of the debate was that it was remarkably normal compared to the the kind of circus travesty, appalling performance we saw from. Trump uh, the previous week. So it, it was more like a debate that you would have expected pre-2016 um, than, than we've had since then. But by the, even by those standards, it wasn't a particularly edifying experience. I don't think Harris is a great 
debater. I think she's sort of awkward on her feet, uh, isn't good at parrying attacks, um, sort of uh, kind of sits there and smiles and looks incredulous without, you know, while taking like five seconds to figure out what to say, leaves, mm. leaves points sitting on the table that could easily be responded to by someone who's a little more deft. So she's not great, but Pence was uh, very obnoxious, kind of like the the milder evangelical pastor version of Trump kind of constantly talking over Susan Page, the moderator, and Kamala Harris, no matter how many times Page would say, Mr. Vice President, Mr. Vice President, Mr. Vice President, over and over and over again. And so I think he came off as pretty obnoxious. Um, but all told, vice presidential debates almost never make a difference. And I don't, I mean, I my, my sort of walk away take from the evening was Harris did well enough. Um, you know, she, she wasn't great, but she didn't do anything terrible. Pence also didn't do anything to certainly make uh, Trump's situation any worse than Trump already has. And, and he <laughs> didn't, and he, and he didn't, right. And he didn't do anything to really help it. So I think it, the net result will be a, a total zero. Uh, no one will remember anything about this evening uh, after a week, except perhaps uh, about the fly. <laughs> um, so um, Bill, I, I, was uh, I, I agree with what everything that's been said, all of the foregoing. Um, I, I would add, though, that I I would I would ratchet up the level of of um, dismay at at Pence. Um, he he struck me as so smarmy. Um, I agree, he didn't look well, uh, but um, but there was something about that that combination of sanctimony and and lying and viciousness that is particularly offensive for somebody who presents himself as a believing Christian um it's uh it, I, I found it highly offensive but I but I also found this particular thing and I'd be curious how you responded uh alarming um he was asked as of course Trump had been whether their their ticket, Accept, will accept the results of the election. And he didn't answer it. Um, he, he sort of smiled and shook his head as if the question were, were preposterous when it was asked. But then he said, well, we would accept a free and fair election, which really, don't you think it telegraphs that, uh, that they're prepared to, uh, to, to raise objections if they don't win and to try to contest the results and the legitimacy of the outcome? Well, <clears throat> I agree with you, but the vice president was in no position to contradict the president on that point. The, the president has not relented in the slightest. Uh, he hasn't apologized for or try to, tried to walk back uh, the message that he sent during, during the presidential debate a week ago. And under the circumstances, Mike Pence was not a free agent. So it's very difficult for me to assess whether he was compounding the felony or just aiding and abetting after the fact. Mm. Uh, so you know, I, I am trying to back up far enough from my own sentiments to try to put myself in his shoes and to try to figure out what his degrees of freedom were. And I, my answer to that question is, with this president at all times, but particularly now, just about zero. 
Uh, Trump was tweeting this morning, denouncing people like Bill Barr and Mike Pompeo, who have been his most loyal servants. Right? And so uh, unless Pence was simply prepared to break with the president, uh, which he obviously was not, I think he did what he had to do. And uh, do I fault him for not doing otherwise? Well, I suppose from an abstract moral point of view, I certainly do. But that means faulting his entire vice presidency and his willing to, willingness to serve the man he's serving. Linda, uh, let's just say a word or two about uh, about Kamala, and then we can leave this sub- subject because I think everybody who has said uh, that it really won't matter is absolutely right. Um, they both did their jobs, I suppose. But um, but what did you make of um, of Kamala's performance in particular? Um, did she sidestep the question about packing the court deftly or poorly? <laughs> well, l- let me talk a minute about the overall optics. I have to say I have a very large screen TV. Okay, it's don't answer definition. the question. Go ahead and make your little speech. <laughs> of course, of course. I'm channeling my But I, you know, I I didn't see the pink eye. Uh, I didn't even notice the fly. Maybe I I was busy writing some responses um, on, you know, in real time. So that may have been the reason. But let's talk for a minute about the optics. I think that everybody is right that in terms of debating points, I think it was pretty much a draw. But in terms of the way these two candidates came across, Kamala Harris is largely unknown to the American public. She had to be reassuring and she had to be likable. And Mona, you and I both know that for women, likability really matters. And if you come across as unlikable as Hillary Clinton did during 2006, it is a much bigger deal than if you are a male and come across as unlikable. She came across as one of your girlfriends. She had a wide smile on her face Mm -hmm. almost the entire time. Pence, on the other hand, looked like a dyspeptic, you know, salesman trying to sell you an old clunker. He was peevish. He had a frown. There was this furrow between his brows. Um, And I think everybody who said he seemed to be scolding, that's absolutely right. And that does matter. Now, for the court packing, I will answer your question. Um, They clearly (laughs) don't. But only by running over your time. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm I'm, uh, I, I'm uh, channeling my pens here. But you know, I'm speaking. The, um, I'm speaking. I'm speaking. The, the fact is, they don't want to answer that question, uh, and in my view, they should. I mean, the idea of court backing, I think, is absolutely preposterous. They should, in fact, disavow it. But they are very worried about turning off some of the left-wing people who would like to see that happen. And so both of them did it. I thought she did it more or less deftly. I mean, you know, she didn't answer the question, but we all remember it. Did did the American people? I sort of doubt it. Yeah. I, I, um, I do want to just add to what you said though, about the, the male female dynamic here, because I do think it's significant that with the, the gender gap being, the size that it is in this race, something there's always been a large gender gap in American life, but this one is, is a, is a, is a chasm. And, um, speaking maybe just for myself as a woman, I did find Mike Pence's arrogant 
talking over the moderator and his opponent uh, to be offensive. And I don't know if I'm speaking for other women, but it wouldn't surprise me if other people had the same feeling about it. What did you think, Linda? Well, um, you know, the, the expression mansplaining, obviously he was trying to do that. But but yeah. look, the very fact that he did continue to interrupt, continue to speak over his uh, time, uh, I think did not do him uh, any good. He should have tried to make himself likable. I don't find the guy very likable myself. Uh, but, you know, he should have been, I think, a little bit warmer than he came across. Okay. Um, the The... The president um, has been releasing um, has been releasing what could be called proof of life videos, um, <laughs> one after another, um, where he poses in various places around the White House grounds, um, at heavily pancake made up, uh, with this kind of um, brownish makeup yesterday and today. Um, and um, he is he, he has given an interview to um, Vox, uh, sorry, to uh, Maria Bartiromo, um, in which he said some things that I guess, you know, that, so it's open for discussion now whether the president is, even for him, a little unhinged. He, he told Bartiromo, I'm back because I'm a perfect physical specimen and I'm extremely young. Um, he, he also said uh, that he would not uh, agree to a, uh, another debate with uh, Biden if, as the Commission on Presidential Debates has, warned, uh, has uh, advised, it would have to be remote. Um, he has been tweeting at twice his usual pace. Um, look, he never struck us as somebody who was particularly well-balanced mentally in the first place. But David, um, do you detect or do you think it's fair to speculate that something even worse is going on right now and it could possibly be as a result of this cocktail of medications? Well, let me add one item to your list of instabilities, and that is his um, announcement on Twitter that uh, negotiations over uh, an economic package are off. Right. Uh, and there will be no more negotiations until after the election. And then a few hours later, uh, the stock market moves mm -hmm. a few down. Uh, a few hours later, uh, he is announcing that, what do you mean? He's ready to sign. Uh, he's got yeah. all the elements there. And then uh, today, the, the negotiations are apparently back on. Um, so I think two things are going on here. One familiar, one unfamiliar. The familiar thing is Trump is the worst negotiator in the world. He doesn't know how to negotiate because negotiation requires some, at least, um, show of equality. Uh, you sit down at the table, both sides have clout, you try to read your cards um, accurately and to get what you can based on your negotiating position. His position is very weak. He needs the stimulus package more than the Democrats do. He certainly needs the debate more than Biden does, and he cannot abide that. It's the only way he knows how to so-called negotiators, he barks and people say, yes, sir, we do it your way, sir. And if that doesn't happen, it um, outrages him. Um, but I think there's also clearly the, the judgment is impaired by, probably by the combination of the drugs and the awareness of impending disaster. He's facing, by the way, not just defeat. This is not like you know, Mitt Romney lost and return, returned to his loving wife and his devoted family and, um, you know, his, his uh, uh, ample uh, economic means and his friendship groups 
if Trump loses the presidency, he is in a world of legal business trouble um, with no support network at all because it's all held together by power. And he must feel that at the same time as drugs are preying on his brain. Bill, at the risk of seeming obsessive, um, one thing in particular that has happened uh, this week, which may be partly a sign of the president's desperation and bad judgment, again, he talked about this on the Maria Bartiromo interview, was that he is ordering Bill Barr to indict Obama, Hillary Clinton, and Joe Biden within 26 days uh, of the uh, second term or something along those lines for what he has called the greatest crime in American political history, didn't specify. But um, at the same time, his director of national intelligence has released and declassified a whole bunch of documents, some of which have earlier been identified as Russian disinformation, right, as a way to revive this whole um, uh, allegation that there was this deep state plot to, uh, to destroy his presidency. Um, and, uh, I, I just find this, okay, look, there's so much news, but I, this strikes me as exactly the kind of abuse of the levers of power and of government that we are most frightened of having in Trump's hands. Don't you agree? Uh, I'll treat that as a question. <laughs> <laughs> it is a bit of a rant, I admit. <laughs> uh, look, uh, I would be I would be even more worried than I am if I believed that uh, that there were any any serious possibility uh, that. Uh, those orders would be executed or that Trump would be in a power in, in a position to make them happen uh, in a second term, because I, my confidence is rising by the hour that there won't be a second term. I will say what I've said many times, and that is the world is lucky that Donald Trump was born in the United States, because if he had been born in a country whose institutions were ripe for autocracy to a greater extent than ours are, he would have, you know, he, he would have turned uh, that country into a very dangerous uh, one-man autocracy. Uh, I do not believe that uh, Bill Barr would carry out those orders. That may be naive of me, uh, but uh, I think uh, I think even he has limits. Huh. Uh, and I did, you know, and, you know, for example, if this were, if this were truly a Trumpocracy, the indictments that were revealed today of the right-wing militiamen in Michigan would never have seen the light of day. That was what the lawyers call an argument against interest, uh, but yeah. he did it. Mm-hmm. So that, that encourages me. So, Damon, do you think that the FBI would pursue a case against right-wing militias in Michigan in a Trump second term? Uh, I like to think they would, um, and you know, maybe, maybe as as Bill was saying, maybe I'm being naive in saying that. But the fact is that Trump is is 
still pretty darn inept. And the federal government is huge. There are a lot of people who work in it, um, many of whom are not political appointees. They've, they're career people. And it, it, it would take a lot of effort and intelligence and uh, attention span focus to actually act to seize control of all of these bureaucracies and make them uh, follow the line of the president, uh, especially when the president is trying to push them over a line that they've been trained for their entire careers never to cross. That's why I think Bill is right. I hope that even Bill Barr, who of course has the head of the Justice Department, has the, the greatest leeway uh, of all of the people, far more than uh, lower level uh, bureaucrats within the FBI or the Justice Department. He could do what uh, Trump is asking him or commanding him to do uh, by opening uh, investigations or even arresting uh, Obama, Biden, and Hillary Clinton. Uh, but we all, I think, assume that, you know, that would be so egregious, so clearly uh, beyond the bounds of anything like normal politics in a country that abides by the rule of law that he won't actually do it because he would know that his reputation would forever be marked as uh you know complicit in in a, in a in an unprecedented power grab so i tend i tend to still have enough faith in our system that you know whether or not the fbi is investigating a plot against the democratic governor of a state like michigan is sort of happening below, way below the level of Donald Trump. I mean, if if there's an alleged crime and an investigation is going on, to actually not allow that to go forward would require far more control of those agencies than Trump will ever be capable of exercising because he's, he's pretty clueless and inept. All right. So, <clears throat> Linda, um, uh, something like a, arresting former presidents and presidential candidates is a bridge too far, but uh, there are many lesser things uh, that this administration has already been able to do, um, despite the supposed guardrails of our democracy, uh, like separating infants from their mother's arms at the border, Um uh, like these releases of uh, of classified documents that the intelligence agencies urge not be released, um, and like the downplaying of the threat to national security of white supremacist organizations, which we have heard from just recently retired members of the Trump administration's uh, Department of Homeland Security, uh, was urged upon uh, you know the career people. Um, and so I, you know, I, isn't one of the lessons here that our institutions, as Bill Galston has said previously, and we've all made this point at various times, but they're not that strong. I mean, we may be getting by by the skin of our teeth if this election goes as we hope. Well, I think that's absolutely right, Mona. And I have no hesitation in saying that if Donald Trump is reelected and we have another four years the democracy that we have known uh, will not be the same. We simply will not have uh, the same country. I think four more years of Donald Trump would do such irrevocable damage to the United States um, that we will not recognize the country five years from now 
if we have another four years of Donald Trump. I, I, I don't think there's really any doubt about that. Uh, yes, there are checks and balances. Yeah, it's true that Bill Barr has not yet um, issued any indictments uh, in this Russiagate uh, scandal that the president keeps talking about. Uh, but he has, in fact, bolstered the president's uh, argument in that case. He has, in fact, suggested that this uh, that there was what he called spying going on, and he has suggested um, that uh, this is a big scandal. And he did, in fact, uh, appoint Mr. Durham. We don't know yet what's going to happen with the Durham report. Nothing has happened yet. But look, this is this is really dangerous. You know, you had the president of the United States, you know, today calling Kamala Harris a communist. He called her a communist. I mean, this is so beyond uh, comprehension. Uh, it, it just baffles the mind. And, you know, back to the discussion about whether or not his steroids are having an effect, I think that they probably are. Um, I have very severe allergies and periodically have to go on steroids. And I will tell you, everybody in my family knows uh, you have to watch out uh, when I'm on my Medrol pad. Uh, it, it's just true. Um, you know, I, I, well, first of all, I, you know, I clean the house entirely. I, you know, turn out lots and lots of articles. I'm very talkative. Uh, the president uh, is not in a normal state right now. And in a normal administration, he would be encouraged to stay quiet. He would be being constantly uh, examined by doctors with all of his vital signs, uh, perhaps even with some mental tests being applied. Uh, but that's not happening. Bill, did you have something you wanted to add? Uh, just two things. Uh, first of all, I don't think most Americans, and certainly not Americans whose, you know, whose, you know, whose judgment would have any effect on the outcome of the election, are paying any attention to Russiagate anymore. Right? This is the president obsessing about something that has fallen off everybody else's radar screen. Uh, that's point. That's point number one. So I'm looking at this through a political lens in a very short-term way. Point number two uh, is that I am struck by the number of things that the president has done in the past week or so to undermine his own position. Right, and here I think David is absolutely right. Uh, the president needs a stimulus package much more than Joe Biden does. But the president has acted in ways that have slowed it and perhaps even have torpedoed it until after the election. Uh, the president needs another debate or two to redeem his performance to the extent that it's redeemable in the first debate. Uh, but he is making it less likely that that's going to happen. I could go on with this list. So if this is a man who's trying to break the rules to benefit his own prospects, he's doing a very poor job of it. We can add that um, he also suggested that uh, he caught the virus from the Gold Star families that he met with, um, <laughs> whereas <laughs> most of what we can gather from the timeline suggests that it might have been the other way around. He might have given the virus to people from 
uh, Gold Star families. Um, he he also exposed needlessly Secret Service uh, agents to coronavirus um, by taking that little joyride outside Walter Reed to greet his his fans. By the way, some of whom were carrying QAnon signs. I noticed. Um, but uh, I was I was struck by something uh, one observer said uh, uh, on CNN that uh, the Secret Service swears to take a bullet for the president. They're not supposed to take one from the president. Um, but um, but let us uh, let us move now um, to. Mona, may I throw what? something in here? Just a thought. Yeah, that, sure. That, um, that when you ask this question about the second term, I, I think people need to think in a much more specific and mechanical way about what that question means. And I have 2,500 words in the Canadian magazine McLean's this week about that. I had to think about this very hard. Um, about 137 million votes were cast in 2016. Most turnout models suggest that the vote will be north of 150 million. Could be even more than that. Um, apply the average of the polls against the 150 million, and what you get is an outcome where uh, Donald Trump has so Joe Biden wins about 75 million votes, Donald Trump 61 to 63 million votes. Now, it's not impossible under those circumstances that Donald Trump ekes it out in the Electoral College. But when you think about a second term, you need to think about what would it be like for Donald Trump to claim a second term as president in the face of a 12 million or so popular vote deficit in an election where he has worked so hard to suppress the vote. So the idea that he's going to be giving orders, we are going to move... Uh, it's, it's, you don't have to worry just about the president's abuse of powers. I mean, you really have to worry about what happens to the whole American political system. Senator Mike Lee tweeted just the other day, this is not a democracy. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people think it is. And if they discover that it's not, they're going to think it should be. The, the wonderful fact about American politics in the first three and a half years of the Trump presidency was that politics stayed mostly off the streets. There was the big women's march at the inauguration. And then otherwise, pol uh, political activity flowed into constructive forms, voter registration, um, finding candidates, raising money, competing at the ballot box. Uh, it's since the summer of 2020, we've seen politics move into the streets. Now, what happens if Americans learn two things? Those who oppose Trump outnumber those who support him by a margin of 12 million or more. But the system is so unfair that politics at the ballot box is futile, and the only place to do politics is the streets. What does That's what a second Trump term looks like. It's a formula for chaos of all kinds. And under those circumstances, when you say, well, Barr will be circumspect, if it's quiet, Barr may be circumspect. But if he's facing big demonstrations, some of which will be chaotic, some of which may be violent, all of which go to his impulses to use repressive force um, and the president's and violent force and lethal force, um, the first six months of a Trump so-called second term look like a formula for real trouble um, and of a kind very different from anything we've seen or even imagined in the Trump first term. So as a wise person said when they were asked to evaluate the what's the worst that could happen if either one of the two candidates for president were to be elected, they said, um, if Biden is elected, the U.S. could look more like Western Europe if Trump is reelected, the U.S. will look more like Russia, uh, which I, I think is is absolutely on the on the nose. Um, not that I'm thrilled about being more like Western Europe, mind you, but uh, considering the alternative. All right, but let us now move to um, what will what the future of the 
political coalitions and the parties will be post-election, imagining uh, what will happen with a, a Trump victory or defeat and and uh, so forth. Um, so some people think that, um, that if Trump is defeated, Trumpism will be killed uh, and that all of its attendant nationalism, racism, xenophobia, and so forth will die with him. Um, Damon, do you have a view on that? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't think that that's true. I don't think it will die with him. I think we saw very clearly that uh, everything since Sarah Palin burst on the scene when John McCain elevated her, there was a large faction of the Republican Party who said, aha, I like that. That's what I've been waiting for. And then, of course, McCain lost. And then in 2012, you saw a kind of round robin of people playing to that faction of the party. And in the end, none of them could get enough votes uh, cohering for them. And Romney became the kind of default sort of normal candidate. And he <laughs> lost. And after after Romney lost, that faction of the party got its reward in Donald Trump bursting on the scene. And he only won because uh, the kind of non-Trump faction couldn't get its act together and settle on any alternative. But once he did win, he consolidated the party behind him and he continues to have over 90% support. Well, now, uh, you know, some of those people would be would drift away and would vote for a new Romney or whoever comes on the scene to represent something more moderate. But a substantial chunk of the party likes what it got with Donald Trump, and they are going to be looking for someone else to step into that role and are not just going to say, oh, I guess we lost. Now I'll just vote for, I don't know, what you know, pick pick your your favorite uh you know two or three moderate republicans who are still around um i just i don't see it the reason why the party in washington stays so close to trump is because they hear from their voters at home and the voters at home like him and they like his style of politics which is rude obnoxious it's it's well it, it, it's it's the jerk party uh, as i wrote in a column last week that was actually inspired by something David Frum said on a podcast uh, over the summer, uh, that he appeals to jerks. And it turns out the Republican Party has more of those in it than most of us would have liked to believe until recently. Uh, David, uh, do you think that it really will be a post-Trump party, even if he suffers a crushing defeat? Or do you think that he will be kibitzing from the sidelines and still be the heartthrob of uh, the majority of Republicans uh, despite the defeat? Or does that tarnish his image too much? Um, I'm going to repeat here something I often say, so forgive me for this. It's a vice of um, Washington and maybe old old men in Washington. Um, I don't You're like these kind, <laughs> I don't like these kinds of predictions because they treat the future as something that exists. What we need here is not prediction. We need plans of action and personal commitments. So I think the question I'm I'm, I'm going to answer, refuse to answer your question as a point of principle and, and answer with a slightly different one, which is what am I going to do? Um, and uh, I know many people who have been in the never Trump world have sort of gravitated out of republicanism away from conservatism to other forms. And, and some people are leaving politics altogether for private life. And maybe that's what we end up doing. But I, I think republicanism and conservatism are worth fighting for. So I don't know 
what the future of the Republican Party is. I know I'm going toe-to-toe to fight for a non-fascist future. For consider, I believe in markets. I believe in entrepreneurship. I believe it's better if the government ta- takes 35% of GDP than if the government takes 45% of GDP. I believe in free trade. I think this world needs American leadership. And those are things worth fighting for. And um, yeah, there are jerks and worse than jerks. There are criminals and fanatics and um, agents of Russian influence and racists and bigots. Um, we'll find out how strong they are. But the only way to find out is to give them a contest like they've never had um, and to keep up this fight that has been going on for five years and to say, this is, we're going to renew it. We're going to recruit younger people. Um, we're going to recruit some of the greats. I mean, that Mitt Romney comes out of this as the, you know, as, as, as a man with clean hands. There aren't so many of those. Maybe he can be some kind of presiding eminence. But this, um, the cause of de- a conservatism with a human face, that's a cause worth fighting for. Linda, you have something to add to that? Well, I just want to say here, here, three cheers for David Frum, and some of us would be very happy to join you. I, you know, we've talked about this many times on the show. I'm not a liberal uh, in the modern definition of that term. Uh, Like David Frum, I believe very strongly in markets. Uh, I believe that, you know, allowing people to keep more of their own hard-earned money in their own pockets and decide how to spend it is better than having government take it from you and spend it the way it chooses. Um, There are just many things about conservatism uh, that are appealing to me, and I have not changed that. Uh, And frankly, one of the things that many of us said in 2016 and have been saying for the last four years is that Donald Trump is no conservative. I'd like to see, see real principled conservatism, um, again, have an audience and again, uh, create a movement, uh, but a movement that is free of those who have aided and abetted Donald Trump, because I do think it is inconsistent uh, in whatever goes forward uh, to welcome back with open arms those individuals who covered up for this very maligned character who has done great damage, not just to the party, but also to the country. So yes, by all means, let's rebuild a conservative movement, uh, but we don't need to have collaborators with Donald Trump uh, who take prominent roles in that. Bill Galston, turning to the Democratic Party, um, the, uh, the, the, the left-wing drift of the party has been fairly pronounced over the last few years, arguably accelerated by the Trump era. Um, so one possibility is that if um, Biden is elected, in, let's say, in a landslide, he would be perceived as a dragon slayer, at least in the beginning, and he would have a lot of uh, clout within the party. And he is not a leftist. He's a centrist. Um, but how long can that last when most of the undercurrents in the party are pulling left? Well, uh, I'm not going to pivot away from your question, but I am, be- I am going to begin with a point about your previous question. Uh, there are a lot of Republicans who believe in markets. There are also a lot of Republicans Uh, I think the ones uh, to whom Trump appeals the most, who believe that the market economy of the past three decades has screwed them. Uh, And they have a case to make. Uh, 
they are not free traders. Uh, they do not think that when their own interests are, are in the balance, that a smaller government is a better government. Uh, so, and these people are not going to go away. As a matter of fact, if the election turns out the way I think it will, with a lot of moderate Republicans breaking ranks and perhaps realigning in the face of Trumpism, they could turn out to be a larger share of a smaller party than they are right now. So, you know, I think, uh, and so the fight for markets is not a fight to restate a consensus. It's a fight to overcome the very powerful groups within the party who are not as enamored of a market economy as the people on this call are. And I think that, and agency is important. And I, I salute David for his assertion of personal agency, but agency always has to be supplemented by a structural analysis in order to try to understand why we are, where we are, and what the degrees of freedom for effective agency can be. And I don't think that's a simple question at this point. Uh, with regard to, with regard to Biden, uh, I think a lot depends on what the Republican leadership chooses to do. I am quite confident based on things that I've heard, but can't repeat, at least I can't source them, that Biden's strong inclination, if he's inaugurated president on January 20th, will be to begin with bills that should be susceptible of consensus solutions, like, for example, infrastructure, and that he will, he will make a real point of stretching out his hand to Mitch McConnell, uh, having the bourbon with him that Barack Obama refused to have, uh, and and showing the American people that he wants to bring the country back together, and that means working with both parties. If there's a repetition of 2009, uh, he's going to lose control of the situation after two or three months, and he'll be forced to go in a different direction. If he loses control of the situation uh, because the legislative filibuster is employed to halt his program altogether, he will have to give way to forces in the Senate uh, that want to abolish the filibuster. Uh, whether there's a majority for that, I don't know, but the effort would be made. So I think that he's going to plead with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi to give his version of political healing and bipartisanship a chance to work, uh, but he's not going to be able to sustain that for six months, three is the maximum, and a lot depends on how uh, the Republican minority responds to his, his outstretched arm. Damon, um, most of the people who help Democrats win elections are um, younger and more liberal than the party as a whole. They're more online, uh, as are donors. Um, and uh, so do you think um, that the election of Biden will have a moderating influence on them as well? Or, or, uh, or do you think that they will be more powerful in pulling him? 
Well, I, I think what Bill was saying is largely right, and it has to do with viewing events in a context. So on the one hand, Trump won't be there anymore. So that will sort of take the foot off the gas of the leftward surge because Trump is an accelerant to the left-wing trends in the Democratic Party. So without him there, that'll help a little, at least for a little while. On the other hand, I think the Democratic Party is a very broad, I've said this before on the program many times, a very broad ideological coalition that ranges all the way from Bernie Sanders on one side to basically, if not him, literally people like him, uh, Michael Bloomberg on the right. That's hmm. that's a big or party. Joe Manchin. Yeah, yeah, Joe Manchin, although he, I I don't usually mention him because he's he's sort of from such a unique position in the party coming from uh, West Virginia. Uh, so he has sort of has structural reasons for where he ends up. But there are mm -hmm. there are plenty of very well off, very well educated, successful uh, Americans who vote for the Democratic Party who are so who sort of view the world the way Michael Bloomberg does the kind of the wall, the, the kind of blue leaning Wall Street vote. Um, and they're big on the East Coast and the Excella Corridor and so forth, um, and as well as in Silicon Valley and in California and other places in Washington State. So, like, there, it's a it's a very big party. Biden clearly does not come out of and is not running a campaign that speaks to the left. And that's why Trump's attempt to portray Biden as a kind of raging leftist is has totally blown up in his face because Biden simply will not take the bait. Harris didn't take the bait last night to use her own more left wing uh, verbiage from the primaries against her. She just kind of ignored all such attempts. Um, so he's coming into it, if he wins, Biden is coming into the presidency very well situated to resist that. But I completely agree with Bill that if the attempt to, to go more moderate, to reach across the aisle, to sort of recreate uh, another era's uh, kind of politics of consensus falls apart. And believe me, the Republicans have all kinds of incentives to make it fall apart because they think they do better if the Democrats are further extreme and more left. And so, you know, there are going to be people who are insisting to McConnell that you should never do it, you know, just make him fail. And when he fails, AOC will take over and become Speaker of the House and then will win huge in the midterms. And that's the kind of thinking that's got us here, and it's the kind of thinking that could well end up leading us to spiral further downward. So we have to hope, I think, everyone on this podcast and lots of Americans have to hope that Biden can break through, win big enough that he can actually have some serious accomplishments right out of the gate and then build on it. Thank you. Okay, now I'm going to ask um, Damon and uh, Bill to just go over in your Democrat corner for a minute while I have an internal argument with David and Linda, um, because I, you know, endorse the idea of fighting for true conservatism, for free markets and for free trade and for uh, a, a reasonable approach to regulation and many other issues. But I have to say that when I survey the right these days, I see zero, zero appetite for any of those ideas. I see a party that has become 
stupider. It has become a, a creature of Fox News and Rush Limbaugh. They're interested in QAnon. They're interested in conspiracies and in uh, ginning up hatred and fear. Uh, they have no interest in liberty anymore. They want to dominate, and they are frightened of this, the boogeymen that are waved in front of their noses every day. Trying to wade into the, the precincts of talk radio and Fox News and National Review and the other conservative publications in an attempt to talk sense to these people, far less others, it, it's, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't fill me with hope. How do you both respond to that? David? All right. Well, um, let's think about this as a dynamic situation. Um, let's say it's three months after the election. Um, uh, uh, Joe, uh, Biden has won the uh, uh, 55, 56 or more percent of the vote um, and a 330 plus electoral uh, college majority. The Democrats have taken the Senate um, and a lot of familiar names have gone down to defeat. Um, yes, there will be the rump. I mean, uh, Tom Cotton's in no danger of losing a seat. And probably neither is is Josh Hawley. So they will they will say from greater Appalachia. But it will be obviously be like an 1896 in reverse. It'll be obvious to Republicans, you cannot build from this. And while we've seen as in California, Republican parties give up the fight and say, you know what, we're just going to go into the entertainment business and, and, and leave governing to the Democrats. Nationwide, I think that's unlikely. And then things happen. There's generational replacement. Um, new issues come to the fore. Uh, uh, and the Democratic and the Democratic coalition will begin to unravel because it is so big and they will make mistakes and we will discover new issues and the baby boomers will fade from the scene and people won't listen to radio anymore. Um, and, and even Fox News may, may begin to change, but whether or not it does, I think the hope is not so-called conservatism. I think that conservatism, that was a time-bound project. That was something from a different era. It's that, uh, well, I'm a conservative person in the sense of the adjective. I don't know about the noun, but the Republican Party is here to stay and it's going to need to compete to for power. And the idea that you're going to compete for power on the basis of writing off the large majority of the American electorate and saying our plan forever is uh, to win ever increasing percentages of white men who didn't graduate from college in a country that is where more people are going to college and fewer people are white, that I just don't think people are going to abdicate that way. Linda, did you want to um, chime in? Yeah, I'm going to say something that's probably going to irritate the heck out of Bill and maybe Damon as well. And that is that the base of Trump supporters, the most fanatical people who show up at his rallies, etc., many of those people are former Democrats, um, maybe even still registered Democrats, but at least former Democrats. Um, and this idea that the Republican Party is a party made up of lower middle class white males without a, a college degree, I, I don't think is accurate. There are a whole lot of Republicans who, in fact, have college degrees, who are business people, either big business or small business. Uh, there are a lot of women um, who in the past have identified uh, as Republicans, certainly white women who have. And they've not been able to find a home in Donald Trump's 
Republican Party. Now, you know, when you listen to the people who are supposedly undecided or those who are voting to Trump, even though they find him uh, appalling and his behavior despicable, they're doing so because they like some of his policies. And as again, as we've said on the show many times, there are many of the policies that he enacted over the last three and a half years that I agreed with. And, uh, and so I'm going to be comfortable being a Republican if there is, in fact, some leadership. Now, who that leadership will be, I don't know. Um, will Tom Cotton become uh, better uh, when Donald Trump leaves? I, I don't know the answer to that either. But it is going to depend, I think, in some part on conservative media. Uh, I, I hope... Uh, Damon is right, or David, whoever said that radio, you know, people may not be listening to radio much in the future. Uh, Fox News is still a big phenomenon, but I was a Fox News commentator for 14 years. And during much of that time, it was reasonably fair and balanced. They had people of both sides. They had hosts um, who were not just, you know, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, uh, types. And, you know, it is possible, I think, if this is a big defeat for Trump, that we'll see some retrenchment and that you'll see more responsible people coming to the fore. That's Bill, did you want to comment? Well, uh, I'm, I'm glad Linda said what she said, uh, because it opens up uh, an argument, which is in part historical, uh, that I think is very important for the analytics of American politics. Uh, the historical record will show that the white working class broke away from its coalition with the Democratic Party in 1968. This is nothing new. Uh, the only th two Democratic nominees uh, who have gotten even uh, to jump ball with this constituency ever since, were both uh, white Southern governors, Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton. Uh, other than that, the Republican Party has commanded a lion's share of the white working class vote for the past half century. We can have an interesting discussion as to why that is. Uh, we can also have an interesting discussion as to why the white working class having joined forces with the Republican Party, then uh, broke from Reagan conservatism, uh, as David and Linda have articulated it. Uh, one explanation, uh, and I'll be charitable and put this one on the table, is that things went fine with this coalition as long as the manufacturing base of the United States was in reasonably good order. Uh, when it collapsed, as it did very abruptly in the first decade of the 21st century, uh, these people increasingly set a plague on both your houses. Neither the Democratic Party nor the Republican Party has any effective prescription for our ills. And they began to call for something that was neither of the above. And they called for it uh, loudly enough and effectively enough so that they finally got it. Uh, and here we are. Uh, so, yeah, these are former Democrats. Many of them are very former Democrats. And what we now have 
is a recessive gene in the Republican coalition for the past 50 years becoming the dominant gene, uh, much to the chagrin of people who held uh, you know, pride of place within the Republican Party during most of this period. So that would be my counter thesis. All right. Um, very interesting. I, I have yet a different view, but uh, Bill, I think we should re, re discuss, uh, revisit the matter of, um, of what happened to the white working class and manufacturing and all of that on another day, because I think um, I, I take a slightly different view of, um, of that evolution. But anyway, let us now on this podcast move to our final segment, just highlights and lowlights of the week. Damon Linker. Well, I, I have a, a very uh, uninspired uh, choice, but it's it's something that I've spent a lot of time with over the last week, and that is simply uh, the kind of horse race data coverage uh, at five thirty eight. Uh, the 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 electoral. Uh, data polling site uh, led by Nate Silver. Um, it, it has been really quite amazing to watch because we are, we really are living through a kind of um, self-immolation of Donald Trump. For months, the gap between Biden and Trump has been about seven points. And uh, within the last 10 days, it has now become 9.8% on 538. Now, that is, that is an impressive change for a very little amount of time because uh, 538 is, I think, the very best of these sites in that they very carefully weigh every single poll that comes out by the historical track record of the pollster, and they kind of weight the results so that change happen usually very, very slowly, uh, and it takes a long time for the, the, the lines to shift. And they have shifted with great rapidity, such that now uh, the estimates that uh, are being put out on the website are of uh, are of uh, Biden having an 85% chance of winning and Trump having a 15% chance. Um, so I, I would just urge, uh, you know, readers or listeners who really do care about, uh, you know, how the election is going to go and want to dig into this kind of data to spend a lot of time at uh, 538. And, uh, you know, if, if you like uh, all of us, you're hoping for the end of Donald Trump, uh, you're, you, things have really Really started looking up in the last 10 days. It's really the debate that, that started the real downfall now. Um, at the risk of um, self-congratulation, may I say that I wrote a column on September 10th predicting that this is exactly what would happen. Um, and I didn't yeah, get it. Good for you. You did. You took the I risk. Did. And you, I did. You deserve I, that I, reward. Thank you. All right. Linda Chavez. All right, I'm going to refer back to something you said earlier in the program, and that was about uh, the child separation policy. We learned this week uh, in such a news-packed week that I'm sure a lot of people missed it, that the uh, inspector general at the Justice Department has a draft report uh, that looks into the question of child separation. Uh, as you may remember, May 2018, the administration started uh, a zero tolerance policy and 
prosecuting adults uh, who came across the border, even if they have children uh, in tow, even if they were breastfeeding mothers. And of course, there are a lot of people in the administration who claimed, oh no, that we didn't really want to separate children. Well, apparently they did. We need to take away children. That was the goal. They hope to scare these Central Americans, Mexicans, and others who are crossing the border into staying home. It was a horrific policy. It's done great damage. And there are still children who have been separated from their parents who have not been reunited. So we shouldn't forget this. And it was carried out by the supposedly pro-life party. All right. Uh, Bill Galston. Well... I am going to revert, at least for this week, to the earlier conception of this segment, namely highlighting and praising uh, something from, quote, the other side. Uh, and I want, to, I want to mention a, a really good piece that just came out from AEI uh, talking about structuring assistance for child care so that it actually gets to the people who need it the most, that is to say, the bottom of the earnings ladder. Uh, it is a very careful, uh, empirically grounded, and I would say morally sensitive piece as well. And I would like to believe that it could serve as the basis for some agreement across party lines uh, on what to do about a problem that is not just a problem of social policy, it's a problem of economic policy, as so many women in particular are, are opting out of the labor force because they can't make it work. And, uh, you know, the, the fall in labor force participation since the pandemic recession began is twice as large for women as it is for men. Uh, and in the most recent reporting period, it was four times as large for women as for men. This is a serious problem in a period where the growth of the labor force is slowing dramatically and the population is aging. We need women who want to work outside the home as well as inside the home to be able to do so. It's essential for the future of the economy and also for a healthy society. And the AEI proposal, I think, is a very good contribution to the discussion. Okay. Uh, David Frum. Four times a year, the Energy Information Agency releases statistics on U.S. coal consumption. Um, uh, the latest came out at the beginning of this past week, October the 1st, and it has good news for those who want to keep living on this planet. Um, U.S. coal consumption in, in last year um, fell to the lowest level since the middle 1970s, and uh, in 2020, it's falling to 25% below uh, the level of 2019. Some of this is temporary. The result of the pandemic, much of it is permanent. World coal consumption peaked in, two, in the middle 2000s um, and has been declining ever since. Uh, it's beginning to be possible to imagine a world without coal. Great Britain, the country that began the use of industrial coal, has almost entirely 
ceased. Um, we can look forward to a, a, a cleaner energy future. That may be something that comes out of the social changes unleashed by the pandemic. Um, and it's not a cleaner, it's, that's not an aesthetic judgment. That is, um, that we may be able to preserve the planet as we human beings have evolved to live on this planet. Okay. Um, mine is that um, following the feces-throwing tantrum that was the first presidential debate this year, um, there was a lot of talk about maybe Biden should try to withdraw from the next debate, and people said, no, no, that would make him look weak, and so he can't do that. Uh, but now, as it turns out, uh, it's it's Trump who is pulling out of the proposed second debate, and uh, uh, because it is because it's going to be held remotely. Uh, and uh, I just have to give a tip of the hat to New York Magazine for this headline: Trump won't debate unless there's a risk of infecting Biden. <laughs> <laughs> And with that, we uh, thank our guest, David Frum, so much. And thank you, one and all. Thanks, all of you, for your ratings and your reviews, which we appreciate, and, uh, and for your suggestions and comments. And we will be back next week, as every week. Thank you so much. <laughs>